the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Some people ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of The Bible Live, your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. All right, we are back on the air. This is the Bible Live. Thank you for joining us. My daughter Stacy is not with me tonight because, in fact, the Matthews family has had a baby. Stacy delivered a beautiful little girl. This week, uh, two days ago, and we are celebrating, of course, of course, as every man has to obligatorily say, but she is a sweet, sweet little gal. What's that? Since Will. Since William. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, But this, yeah, this is the most beautiful girl. That was the most beautiful boy, right? That's true. Good point. It's what grandpas everywhere have to say. We are celebrating uh, the birth of a little gal, Ellie Lorene, so uh, we are happy in the uh, chair but a little lonely tonight since stacy won't be along we'll have to kind of bumble along on our own but you're going to help me i'm sure our bible live uh phone number is 210-340-9585 i'm counting on your help as we get through uh the program here we want to see if you have questions thoughts impressions opinions uh perspectives that you have about the scriptures. We are making our way through the Bible as we do every year, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But we back, we alternate back and forth between the Old and New Testaments, between the Tanakh and the New Testament, uh, what is called the New Testament. And uh, we have read this past week, we finished up reading the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. We've read Matthew, Mark, and now the Gospel of Luke. And we will be discussing that and just kind of closing out the book of Luke. We've spent the last week or two discussing uh, aspects of Luke, the uh, only Gentile writer of the New Testament, the uh, doctor, a physician, with his, with his perspective that is generally considered to be emphasizing the humanity. 
uh, of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. So we have Matthew, the king, uh, emphasizing the uh, fulfilled prophecies and the of the Messiah as he comes to uh, and through the people of Israel, through the designated and predicted prophesied lineage of David and uh, and down to the time of, uh, in the perfect time. Now, we, we were told in the scriptures in the book of Galatians that Jesus came at the perfect moment, uh, the ideal time in human history for the Messiah to come. And we'll talk about that a little bit tonight, comment on it, just why it was it considered the perfect time for the Messiah to come. We'll, we'll kind of talk about that. And maybe some of you have uh, thoughts on that as well. So we, we'll uh, discuss that. But Jesus came at the perfect time, fulfilling the prophecies, uh, the Messianic prophecies, over 300 of them, in fact, uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And then we have the Gospel of Mark, which takes a perspective of the Messiah, the servant nature of the Messiah, how he goes from person to person, family to family, village to village, touching lives, doing good, and being a servant. He came to be a servant. And he, uh, of course, even said that uh, on earth, we have a, generally we have the idea that the, the uh, boss lords it over uh, the people under him. The, the president lives like a king and, and lords it over the people under him, whereas uh, the Messiah said that in his kingdom, in the kingdom of God, the the um, pattern is turned upside down. The one that serves will be the servant of all, and he set the pattern by coming to serve, seeking and saving, serving the lost. So we see that in the Gospel of Mark, and then we come to Luke, a physician and so on, as I've mentioned, who emphasizes the the humanity of the Messiah. We can talk about what that means as well, and in what sense, and how is it that the king of the universe, the creator of everything, uh, the eternal God, becomes a man? How does that happen? And... um, if you've, it, by the way, I, and I mention this quite often, but if you haven't yet watched the uh, series, I, I believe it's put out by Angel Productions or something like that. But it, it, you could Google it easily, called The Chosen, The Chosen. If you haven't watched the first two seasons, I think there are about eight episodes in each season. If you haven't watched that, I really want to encourage you to take the time. You'll enjoy it. It'll be touching very touching and very powerful uh, version of uh, The Chosen. It's called The Chosen. And because it's featuring uh, not only, of course, the person of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, but the the focus is really on those he chose to be his followers, the the uh, 12 disciples and those who formed in some way kind of the entourage uh, of Jesus of Nazareth uh, and some of the women involved and so on as well. If you haven't watched that, I would encourage you to. It's just very touching and very well, well done, very well produced, very well thought through. And what it does is kind of give the backstory. It kind of puts together the 
the individuals that we see in Peter, James, John, um, Matthew, and so on, the other Thomas, the other disciples, puts them together and tells a little bit of their, of course, it's, it's invented, but it's very plausible uh, backgrounds of these individuals, uh, mixed with, of course, the the what we do know from scriptures of them. Uh, it's very very interesting series that um, traces the the life and ministry of Jesus up into his uh, crucifixion. And uh, you, you would, I think you would really, really greatly enjoy it. What I think it does more than anything else, though, is it helps us to realize that when we read the Bible, whether it's the Gospels, uh, any of the Gospels in the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, or it's back in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Tanakh talking about Moses or talking uh, about Joshua and the battles of, of Jericho and others and uh, the time of the Judges, uh, Samson and Deborah and those. Uh, anytime you're reading the scriptures, uh, Moses and others, y- you have to realize that it took place. We're reading a rendition. We're reading a historical narrative of what happened and when it happened and to whom it happened and when it happened and to, and sometimes why it happened. But it's it's. It, it's in to some degrees it's partial in the sense that we're not told every tiny little detail uh, and not always or is it explained why this and that took place and it's very important to realize that the scriptures took place of course in a real world in time and space and real uh, relationships in a real context in a real setting of family and friends and 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 um, work and and uh, just human endeavors in human life. And so it's good for us to realize that uh, as we look at the Scriptures and try to get a sense of what happened and why it happened and and what are the consequences. And then what are, of course, the lessons that we can take from uh, each and every story, each and every individual. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, as we always do, as we walk through the Scriptures each year. But if you uh, haven't seen yet the series called The Chosen, uh, I want to encourage you to because I think it's one of the strong points of the series, one of the great uh, lessons that we can glean from that particular series about the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this past week uh, in our readings, of course, you know that you can go to thebiblelive.com, thebiblelive.com. That's our website. You can go to that uh, on your cell phone, on your um, laptop, your desktop computer, where, whatever instrument you use to get online and, and to browse and so on. You can go to thebiblelive.com uh, every weekday, Monday through Friday, and right there on the homepage you will find um, the readings for this week, Monday through Friday, There'll be five readings, and we read a, a 15 to 20-minute reading from the Scriptures every weeknight. And then uh, if you listen each weeknight and go through them with us, every year we'll go through the entire Bible. So this past week we read from the Gospel of Luke, chapters 20 through 26. We finished, <coughs> as I mentioned earlier, that we finished the Gospel of Luke. And then we started on Wednesday with going back to the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, 
the books of First and Second Samuel. So we read First Samuel chapter 1 through chapter 14. So we'll discuss that tonight. That's what we do on the weekend on Sunday evening. Uh, as you're kind of tooling around the, the city perhaps, or some last-minute errands or who knows work or whatever you are doing across South Texas, or as you work around the house in the garage or somewhere getting ready for the night's rest, uh, we invite you to tune in with us here on the Bible Live broadcast, and we'll discuss, we'll talk about, and kind of give a recap of the readings from this past week. And, uh, of course, take your phone calls if you'd like to ask a question or give an, uh, an answer to a question that we put out there for you or have a comment or um, some kind of a, something that you want to share about the scriptures that we've read or about anything biblical, really, what it means to have a relationship with God, what the scriptures may have meant to you. Maybe we read a passage that has meant something very special to you or your loved ones, your family, and you'd like to just share that word of testimony and encouragement to other listeners as we make our way through the scriptures. You can give us a call. The phone number is 210 340 9585 for the next 90 minutes, 210-340-9585. And like I said, we'll finish up uh, the Gospel of Luke, and then we'll move on back to the books of First and Second Samuel. So we'll be, that's our itinerary for the journey this uh, tonight and this coming week. So join with us, 210-340-9585. Now, let's take a, a quick look at our Gospel of Luke readings and what we covered, what we did. We've already talked about Luke uh, in the background in terms of history. He's a historian par excellence. He's very good. He gives names. He gives dates. He gives places and events and uh, just very, very interesting. He wrote not only the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which we, which I call really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, following the death and resurrection, the ascension of Jesus of Nazareth, and his finishing of his work as the Messiah, uh, we know then the church age is ushered in and uh, through the apostles as they teach and preach and share as the Holy Spirit moves them and... and uh, so we'll, we'll we'll read the gospel. I mean, the the book of Acts, and read about it. But uh, Luke wrote that as well and gave this narrative uh, to us of how the church was born out of a prayer meeting in Jerusalem, and then uh, as it spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the world, as the gospel of uh, as the book of Acts tells us. So. Uh, Luke is the author of these, and um, we we uh, talked about that, uh, his skill as a historian. And so we read chapters 20 through 40, uh, 20 through 24, I'm sorry, and just very, very interesting passages in those, pas those chapters, 20 through 24, as we come and approach the end of Jesus' ministry, his arrest. Uh, we, we covered that aspect this past week in the Garden of, uh, of Gethsemane, how Judas, one of his disciples, was uh, had betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver and came as the soldiers and the 
the religious leaders of the city uh, that came to arrest Jesus. They had decided for several reasons. One, uh, uh, with with when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they knew that that was an event that if it if it was allowed to catch fire and 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 uh, become well known, that it would just raise his his popularity and his presence even more <coughs> in <coughs> among the people. <coughs> and um, I guess we must assume that the biggest problem was that these religious leaders and the political and religious leaders of Israel at the time were evidently trying very, very hard to avoid complications with Rome. They didn't want Rome to come down on them, and they were trying to avoid uh, if Jesus of Nazareth uh, as the Messiah. And remember, they thought the Messiah was here to overcome and to throw, uh, overthrow the Roman Empire and overthrow Rome's hold on Israel at the time. And so they knew that that would bring about a great deal. Uh, if that were to happen, that would bring the the armies of Rome to Jerusalem to destroy the city and so on. And so uh, out of that consideration, uh, kind of in the best interest of the nation and not to have it destroyed by the Roman armies, they knew that, that Jesus had to disappear. Now, that's... that's to some degree, that's very, that's putting the very, their very best possible face on the motivations of the religious leaders and those who uh, rejected uh, the idea of Jesus of Nazareth. But, of course, we too know that some of them perhaps uh, were just absolutely, totally deceived. They did not take the time to consider the claims of Jesus of Nazareth. He laid out his claims to be the Messiah very, very clearly, uh, citing all the the prophecies that were to come true in his life, that he indeed was born of the lineage of David, that he indeed was born in Bethlehem in the city of David, that uh, he uh, was raised in Nazareth and uh, established his ministry in the northern part of the kingdom, up in Capernaum, in the northern part of the, the Sea of Galilee, which was also predicted. So many Predictions, so many prophecies fulfilled in his life, and he he pointed these out and showed them these are the basis. This is the basis upon which I claim and and understand that I am the Messiah and present myself. And so they, some of them, had not taken the time to consider it seriously, uh, and they already had the uh, precon- preconceived notion and bias that. Um, that the Messiah was coming to deliver them, some of them from from um, political military uh, bondage to the Roman Empire in this case. And so they eliminated the idea that he could be the Messiah. They did not know that he had come to establish a spiritual kingdom, that his kingdom was the, uh, uh, of a nature, and not just even about Israel, not even just about this particular people group, but about the whole world and the redemptive plan of, of the Creator God for the entire human race, not only in that particular era and that time, but for decades and centuries to come, that men and women would come into the kingdom of God through faith and trust in God's redemptive plan carried out 
through by the Messiah. So um, th- that's what we read about here in the Gospel of Luke as we sum up the the uh, the chapters and then sum up the book. It comes now to the uh, passion of the Christ, the time of his suffering. Uh, the he has he has committed the time to training and preparing his disciples. Uh, they are trained and prepared as they're going to be until, of course, he promises them that the Spirit of God is going to come when he has finished his work as the Messiah. Re- remember, and what is the work of the Messiah? Why did the Messiah come? He came, uh, of course, to to make atonement. He, as John the Baptist called him, he was the Lamb of God who was to take away the sin of the world. And so there was a um, substitutionary atonement was always the basis of God's redemptive plan all through the Hebrew Scriptures from the book of Genesis all through the Old Testament. Um, God's forgiveness and dealings with men and women was some way related to uh, the idea of there's going to be a substitution. In other words, uh, God cannot just ignore sin. God is gracious and loving and forgiving but at the same time, he is just and holy. So sin, uh, the wages of sin are death. The, sin, the soul that sins, it should die. That's a principle that was laid out early, early from the very beginning in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that God is a holy and just God. So sin, rebellion, rejection of God has its, uh, has its consequences, and, so, and that is death, the uh, that the way the wages of sin is death, and not meaning not just physical death as that came into the into the human experience, but we're talking about uh, death in the Bible. As you look at the word death, the idea is not so much uh, in terms of ex- existence, not that you stop existing and disappear, but the idea of death in the Bible is uh, separation. It means that the relationship is severed. There's a separation. Uh, and we get the idea. The same, we have the notion, for example, when uh, a, a human being dies or an animal dies, or if Soapy Dollar were to die tonight on the airways here, uh, the spirit, the soul, the non material would separate from the body and would be have a dead body. And that's the idea of death, a separation. But in, in, uh, God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of in the Garden of Eden that in the day that you eat of that fruit is the day that you disobey uh, and reject uh, the plan of God in your life and His direction and His guidance, then uh, and eat of the fruit that uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then in that day you will die. And of course they ate of that fruit, but they didn't die physically that same day. A spiritual death took place. The relationship. The intimate, personal relationship with God was severed and broken. And then, of course, immediately uh, was put in place the redemptive plan of God to, that he is forgiving and loving and kind, and he would forgive, but it was shown from the beginning that that the price would have to be paid by another. And that we have the idea that Adam and Eve in the garden, an animal was killed, Sacrifice. They were covered in the skins of this animal. The blood was shed. And, of course, we see verbal teaching and admonition from God that that, uh, that the sacrificial system was put in place for the people, uh, people of God to 
symbolize symbolizing that their sins were forgiven a price had been paid uh, the penalty had been paid on their behalf never was it truly sincerely forgiven by the death of a lamb or a goat or a bull or the animal sacrifices but that was the symbol of the uh, redemptive plan of god that eventually the messiah would come and that was predicted in Genesis 3.15. Uh, a man of the human race, not an animal, not an angel, uh, you know, uh, but a human being, a male of the species, would come. And that he would crush the head of Satan, although he would be wounded in the process. And so that, uh, that idea was the begin, the was introductory. Uh, you have not only the symbolism and the pictures of the work of the Messiah, through the sacrificial system the and the tabernacle and the temple and all the rituals there uh, and you know the coming out of the land of Egypt and so on you constantly see the idea of redemptive uh substitutionary atonement but then also um verbally it was told clearly all through the scriptures that the the messiah would come there'd be a a just and, and true and loving king, of course, but also he would be a suffering servant, that he would take the sins of the world upon himself. So that's all of that is prefigured and, and uh, presented to us in the Hebrew Scriptures. And, of course, we see it here in the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels in the life of Jesus. We see it carried out. Now, you've got lots of, of, of details, though, and stories, like when Peter boasted that he would never betray Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 22. Um, he said he would never betray or flee from Jesus. And Jesus said, well, to, to this very night before the crow, uh, before the rooster crows twice, you'll, you'll deny me three times. And so uh, we see that in the Gospel of Luke. And we finish out with the passion, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and then uh, his Ascension, and before going out to preach the gospel, the disciples the disciples are told to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is to come to them. So I want to finish up this discussion of the Gospel of Luke. When we come back from our break, I want to talk just a little bit about uh, Jesus the Christ and his role as the Messiah, his role as the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the incarnate Son of God and the role of the person and work of the Holy Spirit in and through Jesus and in the believers uh, after Jesus had ascended. So uh, don't go away. The Bible Live will return. We take your phone numbers, 210-340-9585, and we'll be right back. Don't go away.
Suzanne Shelton, with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway, has taken care of the Dollar family, that's Suzanne and me, plus our three children, for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to DrShelton.com or call 590-7878. What a privilege she was, my mom. You're listening to the Bible live with Soapy Dollar. I hope you'll forgive the personal flavor of the program on this intro. We've just had a little baby girl born into our family, and uh, we're celebrating that and the role of moms. We are we're so excited about that and thrilled. And so we are back. This is Soapy Dollar. You're listening to The Bible Live. We make our way through the scriptures uh, each year all the way through the bible from the old testament genesis to the new testament the end of the new testament the book of the revelation stacy my daughter is normally with us but she has uh given birth this week to her second child and our first granddaughter we have a grand boy already uh with stacy and her husband tw and uh we're just really excited and thrilled and happy as we could possibly be the beautiful little baby girl. So thank you, John. Appreciate it. <laughs> well, we miss having her. Yeah, we miss her and her comments. She helps. Familial, uh, what do you call it, responsibilities. That's right. She fills in the blanks and kind of covers for her old dad when when uh, we kind of run out of words or, or misstep or forget what we were talking about. Callers could do that, too. You could, Yeah, callers can do that as well. You can remind me. Uh, Soapy, you didn't finish that thought. What was it? You started to say something, and then you got sidetracked. Uh, you can do that, or you just call in with your opinion, your thought, your impression, your experience with the Scriptures. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we read through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we began on Wednesday this past week the the books of First and Second Samuel. We read First Samuel chapter 1 through 14 uh, this past week, and we'll get to that in just a bit as well. But if you'd like to join us, you can give us a call, 210-340-9585, 210-340-9585. And uh, I was just going to finish uh, the commentary a little bit about the Gospel of Luke. We we see two, two theologically, there are two uh, rather, hmm, how would I say, complex things that take place in the life and ministry of Jesus. Not, I mean, not just too many, I'm sure. One of those is the idea of the incarnation, the idea of um, God becoming a man. And uh, I know, remember that in the scriptures, the one of the problems that the religious leaders had with Jesus 
uh, he even told them at one they, he even asked them at one time for what which of the good works that I'm doing are you picking up stones to stone me or to to execute me what is it uh, which good work are you punishing me for and they said not for any of the good works that you've done but that you being a mere man make yourself out to be god and they knew uh, the un, the essence of, of jesus claims some people say well jesus never really ever claimed to be god uh, it, it just it cannot be uh, anyone who has ever read the scriptures uh, even uh, even just superficially reading and the the, the narrative itself without going deeper would see that he clearly did uh, claim to be that long-awaited promised Messiah and that he established clearly the fact that the Messiah was indeed God himself incarnate. Remember, <coughs> in the scriptures, <coughs> the God of the scriptures has already established, clearly established throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, that God is one God, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, but there are He is plural in nature. That that God is relational. There are three distinct persons in the Godhead, and they their oneness. This is something is called the Trinity. It's not actually a word in the Bible, but the 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 belief or the idea of the plurality of the Godhead is summed up in the word the Trinity, and of course Jesus. Uh, was the one who formulized the idea of the Father, the Son, the Spirit. But even in the Old Testament as well, uh, although that particular formula, that particular series of words is not used to describe the Godhead, uh, other words and other titles are used. And, and But throughout, we're told about the Spirit, the, and God the Father, the Creator, and the Son of God mentioned that the plurality of the Godhead is alluded to and referred to in Hinnadat over and over again. There, there are three distinct persons. They're not just three parts uh, of the same, or they're not just um, three forms of the same, uh, like water is a liquid it can be a liquid, it can be a solid, it can be a gas or a vapor in, in terms of a mist or evaporated water. It's not that. Uh, there are actually three distinct persons, each with all of the characteristics of personhood, intellect, emotion, and will, and each, of course, with all of the, each of all, all the attributes of deity, uh, all the omnipresent, uh, uh, um, omnipotent, all the omnis and all the eternal nature of God, just and right and loving and pe- all of the all the attributes of God that are revealed. Each person of the Godhead has uh, each of them and all of them. They're co-equal. There's not one more important or um, uh, ranked higher than the other. They're co-equal. They act together in perfect love for one another, in perfect character. Uh, they're, they're one in their character. They're one in their intent, in their purpose, and they're one in their action. Wherever you see them in Scripture, the three are act, acting in coordination, in t- total and perfect harmony, unity, and oneness. So that's the idea of the Godhead uh, is uh, a triune nature of God. And, of course, what we see in the redemptive plan of God is that uh, – Jesus referred to him in that in that formula 
that he is the son, the son of God, the son of man. He One of his favorite titles for himself is the son of man, as he picked up from uh, uh, the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, uh, referring to himself as well as the son of man. Uh, God takes on flesh so that he can carry out a redemptive plan. Now, what is it, it isn't the idea that a man became God. It, the idea is that God, who is perfectly capable of, uh, and that's one of the points, in fact, as I watched some of the episodes of The Chosen this past week, that's one of the points that Nicodemus brings out, is that God is perfectly free to become anything or anyone or any, that he wants any time. And and uh, I understand from Moses at the burning bush in the Old Testament, where, where God revealed, he says, what? Who should I say sends me? Uh, what is your name? And and God says, I am. And my understanding uh, from Jewish sources is that this is I am. I will be what I will be. I will be what I will be. And God, is, of course, is free to become and do uh, as he pleases and wants. So that for one is that God is totally free to become a man. And if you think about it, that God is not like a rock becoming uh, a human person, or it's not like an animal. It, it, we are created in God's image. We too are personal. We have intellect, emotion, and will, uh, as God does. And although we are not, we are finite, and God is infinite. Uh, we are temporal. God is eternal. We are dependent. God is independent. But the the essence, in essence, that we are created in His image, that we uh, we have those attributes and characteristics of personhood uh, just as God does and that's unique for us as human beings. And so God, in order to become a man, it wasn't like a total and absolute transformation into something totally different, but that it was a humbling of himself. It was a limiting, a voluntary leaving off of his divine attributes uh, and to become uh, a man become uh, just becoming instead of uh, infinite becoming finite and instead of becoming totally independent he became totally dependent submitting to and and acknowledging submitting to and obeying the guidance of the father as the perfect man uh, uh, the role of a human being so uh, that is the idea of the incarnation is that God is free to become a man if he desire and that it's not a transformation of nature. It's actually just, uh, as Paul points out in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself and, and voluntarily left off the free exercise of his divine prerogatives. He never ceased being God, but he left off the free exercise of his divine prerogatives and uh, nature, and he became the perfect man of faith, trusting and obeying and submitting perfectly as a man to the guidance and the work of God the Father and the Spirit as the Spirit led him throughout his life and ministry. So he became the perfect man of faith. Then he who knew no sin became sin for us. Again, we talk about substitutionary atonement. Uh, that's a little bit of the, the, the theological understanding of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we see uh, the idea of one of the great, not not a not a mystery in such that it's just so totally incomprehensible and inconceivable to us, but it, it is 
uh, one of the great mysteries that was hidden and revealed in the Christ, in the Messiah, uh, the, in his incarnation. And then, of course, uh, we come to this aspect of the Holy Spirit. Before, uh, before his disciples, uh, Jesus had prepared them and trained them. They were to go out. They were to take the message of the gospel to the, all the world, to every nation, every language group, every people group, everywhere around the world. Of course, that didn't begin in the time of Jesus either. Even King David in the Psalms talked about, let all the nations, let all the people everywhere praise God. It was always a part of God's plan. Uh, it always included the whole world um, was the objective, that God was revealing himself to every human being on planet Earth and calling out of the out of the human race a people for himself. I will be their God. They will be my people. Eighty-two times we find that particular phrase repeated uh, throughout the scriptures. I will be God, their God. They will be my people. That's the redemptive plan of God, to call out of the human race a people for himself. And uh, ultimately, the means by which that is accomplished is through the redemptive plan, the, the, the Messiah, this, the God-man coming to earth, living out a perfect life of faith and trust and obedience, submission to the Father, trusting in the Father, and then uh, he who knew no sin becomes sin for us, uh, taking our sin upon himself, our, the consequences of our sin, so that we, by faith and trust in him, can receive the free gift of forgiveness and cleansing, and not only free from the penalty of sin, but now through the work of the Holy Spirit, God begins to liberate us and deliver us from the power of sin over our lives. Not just uh, the penalty, not just forgiveness, but we need God's power to take the sin uh, out of our lives. And that is where Jesus promises that when he uh, is ascended, when he is gone, he tells his disciples, wait in Jerusalem to receive power from on high. The Holy Spirit is going to come. <coughs> Excuse me. Just as there was a perfect time for the coming of the Messiah into the world, in terms of uh, the Pax Romana, there was there was basically peace, a time of calm uh, through the Roman military had established some, uh, although it was a tyranny, uh, uh, it was also established a relative peace and security in, across the civilized world of that era, and so we have. This time of peace, several times Jesus was uh, uh, actually defended and protected by Roman soldiers, and particularly in the time of the of the apostles. Uh, St. Paul, for example, was delivered a number of times from um, threats on his life by Roman forces, Roman military, because he was a Roman citizen. And so we see that uh, the, the Roman power, the, the military power and presence of Rome, was one reason that made it the perfect time. This relative stability uh, in the world for the time for the Messiah to come. And then there was the uh, Roman roads in that context. The Rome, they built roads uh, They were that were famous for the Roman roads. All those roads led to Rome, of course, but they read, led across the Roman Empire. And not only physical roads, they were called iters, I-T-E-R's, but they, there were, of course, the, the Mediterranean. The uh, waters as well were free for people to navigate and travel. And the, and the apostles made 
free use of all of the that free travel and protection and safety and travel uh, as they carried the gospel down them and across them across the known world of that time. So you you, you see the Pax Romana, you see the the roads uh, that were created. There was there was a common language, uh, e- even coming from the time of the Greeks. The r- Greek language was was under uh, Alexander the Great that preceded the Roman Empire. Greek had become the uh, the lingua franca, the common language of of uh, cities and commerce across the the civilized world. And so when Paul and the other apostles traveled and carried the gospel to cities across the uh, Roman Empire, they were able to go in and speak a common language that was understood by all the people. An amazing development. So you have the Pax Romana, you have the lingua franca, and then finally you have the presence of uh, of of Israelites, the people of Israel all over the Roman Empire. Remember in 586 B.C., the uh, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem and the people of Israel had been scattered all over uh, the nations of, of the world. And they had been there generations now, many generations, hundreds of years. They knew the language. They knew the cultural cues. They, they, had, they were established in the communities, in the cities. Uh, and so when the, the Apostle Paul went to these cities and, and, and the apostles went to these cities across the Roman Empire, one of their first stops generally was the the tabern the uh, not the tabernacle but the synagogues the meeting places for the people of Israel. They were had been there centuries. They were there worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and celebrating and looking for the Messiah. And of course, they had shared that message with people, uh, Gentile folks in those cultures and societies. And they too were looking, and so Paul had it was something like a potted plant sitting there waiting for the seed of the gospel. The Messiah has come, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, and his life, his his ministry, his death, resurrection, and ascension, could, had a welcome place for those who were looking and waiting for God's redemptive plan in the person of the Messiah. So you can see how you why Paul in the book of Galatians says in the perfect time. In, in just the right moment, uh, uh, the the Messiah came. He was born unto a woman, a human being, and under the law of the people of of um, Israel, the the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and King David. So uh, that's how we see the the perfect timing of the incarnation itself. That's how we can understand the perfect timing of the Messiah coming. But now also, the Messiah came. The Holy Spirit comes now uh, on at the end of the life, the earthly life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. He promises the Spirit of God is now going to come and take on a new relationship with his people, with the people of God. Um, and, of course, th- the reason for this is that, remember, Jesus as the Messiah is the prototype of the new race of the redeemed. He's the firstborn of the twiceborn. He's the second Adam, the last Adam, as as Paul calls him. And Adam all died because Adam was unable to remain faithful and and, uh, and obedient to the Lord. Uh, un- through Adam, all death came into the human race. In other words, we all came under the condemnation of sin and death. Uh, Adam and Eve were uh, the, the firstborn of the human race. All of the human genetics uh, of every human being that's ever lived and is alive today even uh, our genetic makeup was located was there in our first 
the first couple in Adam and Eve, the potential for every human being was there within them. And so when they fell into sin, they came under the condemnation of sin. The entire race came under the consequences of their sin and rebellion. And so sin passed to the human race. Uh, and, and the sin nature, the tendency, the irrevocable, irresistible tendency to selfishness and sin came about. And so we, we see that now, though, in the Messiah, uh, the re- human race, the race of the redeemed is begun. Jesus is the last Adam in that he was able to do what Adam was not able to accomplish. He was able to see it through and remain faithful to uh, the the calling to be a perfect man of faith, trust, obedience, submission to the Father uh, for on our behalf, and then took our sin upon himself. And because he was that, he became the prototype of the new race of the redeemed, the firstborn of the twiceborn in his role as a, as a human being, as the Messiah. Uh, he became the firstborn of the, of the race of the redeemed. And because he, remember, he was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit in, in Mary's womb. Uh, he was guided in, in all of his life in, in the process of, uh, of as he was, as he developed in Mary's womb. Remember, even at one time, uh, when uh, the mother Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, came to see uh, Mary, her second cousin, her cousin, uh, the baby leapt in the in the womb. In other words, uh, John the Baptist leapt in her womb. That we see the presence of supernaturally that God's power and presence was involved not only in conception but throughout his life experience. The, Jesus was led and guided, uh, protected and guided along the path and enabled to fulfill his role as the perfect man of faith, the Holy Spirit was guiding him in, uh, in all the way. And so uh, now that he is leaving, he says to his disciples, when I leave now, the Holy Spirit is going to come to you because you now are going to become God's people through your faith and trust in me. And, the, and one of the characteristics now in, the, in this new era of the of the people of God um, and, and of Israel, uh, the expansion of Israel and God's people to every nation and tribe and language around the world would be that the Spirit of God now comes to accompany and guide and direct and empower the life of every believer. From the moment you trusted in Christ as your Savior, if you have made that, taken that step and submitted your life to Him and trusting in Him, the Spirit of God has come to you and with you to guide you to uh, to empower you to live as you ought to live to to help change and transform us actually it's called the word is called sanctification we're being made holy even as we are already we've been made holy positionally through the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth that's our position uh our status legally is that we are forgiven and cleansed and made perfect in Christ. But now the Holy Spirit is here to make that a reality in our daily life and experience and on into eternity uh, so that uh, uh, we will be not only forgiven, but we will be transformed and changed. Now, this is a process, a lifelong process, Not doesn't happen all at once. Uh, I began knowing the Lord when I was about seven years old, seven or eight. Uh, began to walk with the Lord, and uh, over now the many, many years of walking with Him, God is still working. He has rubbed off a lot of the rough edges. He's 
protected me and guided me and and disciplined me from time to time when I needed it uh, constantly. But his spirit has been at work in me, with me, and through me and around me to transform my life and to empower my my influence, to empower my witness for the Savior in the lives of other people. And he's doing the same thing in your life. If you're a child of God, the Spirit of God has indwelt, has tabernacled now in your life and is guiding and, and, and leading you through life, transforming and changing you uh, and delivering you from the power of sin as well. And so the Holy Spirit comes in the book of Luke. We say that, see that in uh, chapter 24. The Holy Spirit was to come and fill them with power from heaven. So that sums up our, our commentary on the Gospel of Luke. If you have a question or comment, I'd love to hear from you. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. There is our music again. We're coming into our final segment. We'll now introduce in this final segment the uh, books of First and Second Samuel. We'll talk about this this very important individual, Samuel. He's a very, very interesting character. He's a transitional person. Uh, and I'll explain what that means when we come back from this break. So don't go away. The Bible Life. We'll be right back. Our phone number is 210-340-9585. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. This is the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Comes in the name of the Lord. Oh yeah. What? Yeah, it does. It does for sure. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Bible Live, our final segment. And we haven't heard from you yet. 210-340-9585. If you'd like to comment on uh, what we've talked about so far, it's been really focused on closing out our consideration and our experience uh, for this reading year, at least, the Gospel of Luke, uh, this Gentile, the only Gentile author of the of a book in books in the New Testament, wrote the Gospel of Luke and the um, book of the Acts, uh, called the Acts of the Apostles, or I call the the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, let me put out a question for you. Maybe this will get someone to give us a call: two ten three four zero ninety five eighty five two ten three four zero ninety five eighty five. To whom? 
did Luke write or dedicate his two books, the book of Luke and the the uh, book of Acts? To whom did Luke write or direct or, or dedicate his two books? Uh, there is an actual name that you could that is mentioned in them that he says uh, this is to you i write these things to you and so who is this one to whom uh, luke dedicated or wrote his books now it could be a person or it could be uh we'll talk about it but we're not quite sure if it's an actual individual or just kind of a a name made up name with kind of a play on words but uh, if you know the answer, give me a call, 210-340-9585. To whom did Luke dedicate his two books? All right. Uh, let's go now to our consideration of the books of First and Second Samuel, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We have finished the books of uh, the, the Tanakh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, the Torah, and then we went from Deuteronomy to Joshua, uh, Judges, and Ruth under the leadership of now of Joshua. Moses stays there in in Israel. I, I mean, stays in the uh, on the other side of the um, Jordan River. He is actually he is not allowed to go into the Promised Land. And I, I had a an experience this past week. Uh, one of the young men that we were ministering to and trying to encourage had a real problem with that. He, he's kind of reading through the Bible now uh, for the first time. And, and one of our, one of our staff persons, one of our volunteers was telling me that this, he was talking about, well, I think that's unfair that, that Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. And so this, this is a person who's, you know, looking for faith. He's, he's considering, uh, the Bible. He wants to know the Bible, what the Bible's message, and get to know the the God of the Bible as God reveals Himself through the Scriptures. And he had a hard time with the idea that that Moses was not allowed to go into the Promised Land because, and if you remember, it was because of his disobedience to God in providing water uh, for the second time, providing water for the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness in the desert. Uh, environment and very arid, dry environment. Uh, God, again, provides water for them. And uh, Moses disobeys the instructions that God gives him to provide the water. And he kind of gets prideful. Do we have to provide water for you again? And so on. We're not told, it's not laid out just with perfect clarity for us exactly what was involved in Moses' disobedience and his sin. But uh, and God is loving and forgiving, but the consequences for Moses was that he was not allowed to go into the promised land. Uh, Joshua would be the one to lead them in, uh, in Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And we've we've already read Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, but I'm I'm just mentioning this because uh, uh, this is one of those times when you look at the scriptures and you have to you have to realize it has a context. There is an environment. There is a, a immediate environment. The individual, the person that's being talked about or written about, or the group of people, going what's going on with them and in them and with with them in their given moment. And then, of course, there's 
what's going on around them and what might God be doing in them and with them and through them for the benefit and for effect on other people. Uh, And then finally, we talked about this idea. You have to look at every piece of Scripture and you have to take a perspective, the immediate uh, perspective of the individual, what is God doing in them, with them, through them, and to them, and then through them to their environment, to the to what is happening in their context uh, uh, at that time, in that moment, in, in their sphere of influence. And then, of course, you take the, you know, the 30,000 feet view of, okay, what does this mean to the entire, the total redemptive plan of God down the road? Maybe sometimes uh, something is done in a given moment for purpose. An, an individual, he has his experience, and God is teaching him something about faith and obedience and trust and, and something about himself, about God's power and God's love, his faithfulness. But also he might be teaching the people around him a lesson uh, about uh, God's love and power and about his holiness and so on. And then he might be at the same time fulfilling, uh, bringing something into, uh, putting something in, in organized and getting ready for the bigger plan of God, the redemptive plan. So you have to consider all of those different aspects when you look at uh, these books. We've read Joshua. Then we went through the 325, 350-year period of the judges. Uh, We talked about these 11 men and one woman who served as judges during that time. And now we come uh, to the time of uh, Samuel. And we're going to look at Samuel. And he's going to be the one who transitions us from the time of the judges uh, now in uh, in the time of a, of a theocracy we're going to go to a monarchy so Samuel is going to transition us from the time of the judges he's the last of the judges actually technically he was he lives at the same time uh, probably of Samson and no Samson so uh, Samuel uh is the last of the judges, and he becomes the first of, in the sense of the prophets. So we're we're transitioning from the time of the judges to the prophets, and the time of the judges to the time of the kings, uh, and the time uh, the the priests' influence uh, begins to wane and change now. And the prophets, the role of the prophets come, and their role of advising and guiding and speaking into the lives of the kings and to the people uh, uh, of Israel. So Samuel is a, is a transitional person. Uh, he has a very unusual birth experience, as, some of, as many of God's people that he chose did, Moses and others. Um, he is um, miraculously provided to uh, Elkanah and Hannah, his parents, and we'll get into the details of his birth experience a little bit. That was covered in our readings this week. We read First Samuel chapter 1 through 14, and, and we'll talk about that. But just quickly, let's go to our phone lines and pick up uh, Virginia is calling in. Maybe, oh, oh, I think maybe Virginia, we lost Virginia. Okay, we'll have to come back. Virginia, give us a call back. I think maybe she was going to comment on... Uh, the question that I put out there about to whom did Luke 
write his two books. Or maybe Virginia had another comment or thought to share with us from the Gospel of Luke or some of our comments that we've made, or maybe just another, just wanted to talk a little bit about the Scriptures and what they mean to her and her own uh, walk with with God or uh, this whole idea of what is involved in a walk with God. You can ask any kind of question you'd like, and uh, we'd love to hear from you here on the Bible Live broadcast. The phone number is 210-340-9585. So we'll wait, see if Virginia will give us a call back, and uh, we'll get to hear from her this evening. Well, let's go on then to our consideration of Samuel. We're told in the early chapters here that uh, uh, it is he is born to this couple kind of a supernatural birth. Hannah is unable to have children. She's one of two wives of a man named um, Elkanah. And Penina is the other wife, and she ridicule, ridicules Hannah constantly because Hannah is unable to have children. And so Hannah, they go to the tabernacle. They're going to celebrate you know, the, one of their annual pilgrimages to worship God and Hannah is weeping and sad because she's unable to have children and she's enduring this uh, this uh, kind of harassment and oppression from uh, the other wife Penina and uh, she is praying at the tabernacle and the prophet Eli sees her praying sees her lips moving but not not hearing a voice and he thinks she's drunk so he goes to correct her and she says, no, no, I'm not drunk. I'm, this is my situation. And the prophet tells her that God is answering her prayer and she will have a child. And uh, and so, indeed, Hannah does. She dedicates the life of her child to God. And uh, this is what is called a, a, um, a, 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 not, hmm, I'll think of the word in a moment. She made a vow to the Lord. Uh, and what kind of vow is that called? Maybe you can give me a call and shake my memory. Uh, um, Leverite uh, is part of the idea of making a vow to God. If, you, if you're not a priest but you want to serve God and you feel a calling on your life to serve God, then either your parents or you can make this kind of, of a vow uh, and serve God in that way. John the Baptist uh, had a vow on his life. Of course, he was a... He was a Levite, for sure. But Samuel here is one who takes that vow. And um, Nazarite, there you go, the Nazarite vow to the Lord. And so a vow is made for him to serve the Lord, and he does. His entire life is dedicated to God's service. He, at, uh, when he comes of age, uh, to time to be weaned from his mom, she takes him to leave, uh, Eli, and he... Eli takes over his education, his teaching, and raising him, and he's raised there at the tabernacle uh, under the tutelage of the high priest Levi, uh, Eli. And so um, then uh, Samuel grows to, and, and we also read about in one of the chapters here, as he grows as a young boy, at some point then God calls on him. And he begins to hear the voice of the Lord. He, very, he has a very unusual experience that he hears God. God speaks to him even as a young boy. Uh, 
but he doesn't know it's God. And so he thinks it's Eli talking to him, and he runs to see what Eli wanted. And he does this three times <laughs> because he's unaccustomed. But what does Eli tell Samuel? Now, maybe some of you could give me a call and answer that question. When when uh, Samuel goes to him and says, oh, what did you want? He said, I didn't say anything. And, and But Eli had, I mean, Samuel had heard a voice calling him. And, and um, so what did Eli tell Samuel to say? So the next time you hear that voice, if you hear that voice again, here's what you say. And, and so he did that, and Samuel heard uh, God speaking to him and gives him a message uh, for Eli, in fact, that Eli had failed in his role as a father, as a parent, which is a very interesting consideration that his role as a parent is something that in, in that that influenced heavily his experience with God and his experience in ministry. Well, I think that's probably a, a good word for all of us in ministry, pastors, missionaries, uh, evangelists, uh, different kinds of roles of ministry that we might have, that one of our primary roles still is to be a godly father, a godly mother to our parent, our children, and to raise them in the admonition and the nurture of the Lord as well. And that's an important part of our role. We don't we don't sacrifice our children uh, on the altar of ministry. And, of course, we see that uh, lesson carried out very clearly uh, in the life of Samuel and, of course, in the, in the life of Eli, who was uh, not—he didn't guide his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He did not, uh, he did not guide them p- correctly. And so they grew up to have no respect for God. They misused the the people's offerings that they brought to the tabernacle, and they were sexually immoral. And uh, so part of the message that that Samuel had to give to his mentor, uh, Eli, his father figure, I guess you would say, was that he would that his priestly lineage was going to be ended, that neither of his sons were going to uh, be heirs to his role as a priest uh, of Israel, and so um, he he gave him a special message too that uh, that both of his sons would die on the same day, which was a very specific uh, prediction that God gave to Samuel, and that he had to communicate that to to Eli, and he had to tell him what God had told him about his sons and and the consequences of their immorality and their disobedience. So that was in the early chapters of the book of Samuel. And uh, we we, uh, read through that. And then in chapter 4, we go into talking about now a little bit more about the role of Eli and Samuel. After Eli's death, uh, Eli dies on the same day. that uh, he falls off a log backwards when they bring the news of his son's death. He was uh, very heavy, overweight, and he falls in and uh, breaks his neck and his, dies on the same day. So <coughs> that we see in chapter 4 of the book of Samuel. So the book of Samuel comes up very quickly. 
Uh, it, it's coming out of the time of the judges, and, and it's going to transition from that terrible time of darkness and confusion and chaos in the time of the judges, with the exception of our wonderful story of the, of the book of Ruth, where we see this this little short book about faith, about love, uh, and about restoration and about redemption. Uh, the Messiah's um, uh, parents, uh, Boaz, comes to marry Ruth, and then they have a son, and then he has a son, and he has another son. And finally they come to, they're both of them in the uh, ancestry of King David, who becomes uh, into the ancestry of the Messiah, Jesus himself. So we uh, we see that taking place at the end of uh, in the time of the of the judges, but now Samuel comes along. He's going to transition to the time of the kings. Uh, so we've talked about his early life, how he his birth, his development and growth, his teaching, and they he takes them through um, some times. There is a time when the uh, the people of Israel use the the tabernacle, the, the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant. They kind of use it as a good luck charm. And, you know, this happens a lot. Some, many times God has something that is very useful and very powerful and very uh, good for God's people. But we turn around and, and we we use it wrongly and it, and it becomes not a blessing, but it becomes something that is detrimental to our growth and our development. And this happened in, in some ways with the Ark of the Covenant here. They began to make it a, a good luck charm. They carried it out to battle. They were never told to do this. They carried it out to battle with the Philistines. Uh, now, the Philistines are, are a nomadic group from across the Mediterranean. They come across down to the to the uh, eastern end of the Mediterranean, and they settle in that land, and they become um, a real thorn in Israel's side. They, they, they oppress, and they make war against the Israelites throughout many generations, many decades. And uh, so the, they go to war with the Philistines, and for a good luck charm, they use the Ark of the Covenant, and it turns out to be a very bad move. The Ark is taken. The, the Ark of the Covenant is captured in battle. The Philistines take it, and, uh, which, which turns out to be not only a lesson for the, Philist, for the uh, Israelites, uh, the loss of this important... Uh, this important thing that God is giving them to guide them and to encourage them and to nurture them in worship. Uh, but, but it also becomes something that God teaches about himself to the Philistines because uh, the Ark of the Covenant is placed in, they place it in a temple for their gods. Uh, and every night that it's in that temple, every time they put it in there, the, uh, the, the idol of their god, their false god, uh, falls over, and um, it, it breaks. And so it's it's very interesting what happens with the Ark of the Covenant while it's in the possession of the uh, Israelites. They um, they learn some important lessons that, of the true God. Uh, they they put the Ark in the temple of their false god named Dagon. And this is in chapter 5. And what happened to the idol? Well, during the night it fell on his face face down before the ark and the arms and the head were broken off. 
And so other things happened too as well. The Philistines, uh, a, a kind of a, a, an illness broke out among the Philistines. Maybe if you know the answer, you could give me a call. What else happened to the Philistines that made them want to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant, made them want to return it <laughs> to the people of Israel, to its rightful owners, because they they learned these see the strange things that happened surrounding the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, do you remember what it was? It had to do with some animals. Uh, what happened in chapter 6 of the book of Samuel? And so they, they hitched up a cart uh, to it. They put two cows, two milk cows, female uh, cows, connect to the Ark. And these cows had had calves. And But even then, the unusual thing, kind of a miraculous thing, the cows walked away from their calves. Now, if you've ever raised on a ranch or around livestock, cows won't do that. The calves would would follow them. And, of course, they, they kept the calves. They wouldn't let the calves go. But the cows actually walked away from their calves, which they would normally never leave them. And they did that. So we see some of these stories coming up in the development of, of Samuel. This Boy, this time flew by today, tonight. Chapters 1 through 14. And then we're going to see now Samuel is going to be used to, not only to say goodbye to Eli, but he's going to usher in the time of the kings. He's going to prepare and anoint the first king of Israel. King Saul. So we'll talk about that next Sunday night here on The Bible Live. The Bible Live is dedicated to helping restore the Bible to our culture. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 930 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The The Bible Bible Live Quiz Show. Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and The Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 